All right, colleagues and friends, thank you so much for joining us uh, today to uh, celebrate uh, a path twice traveled, my journey as a historian uh, of China. Uh, as I was thinking about introducing Paul, it occurred to me that that a book talk needs a kind of a sort of special sort of, in, uh, sorry, an autobiography needs a special kind of introduction because, of course, that's why I didn't call it an autobiography. Right. But also, if you want to know about Paul's life and career, of course, it's here. And if you have any questions after this, you can just ask Paul. So it doesn't seem necessary for me to go on at much length. But I will observe the formalities and tell you a word or two about Paul. Um, Paul uh, retired from Wellesley College in 2000 as Edith Sticks Wasserman Professor of Asian Studies and History uh, after a career uh, uh, at Wellesley of 35 years uh, preceded by some peregrinations, which uh, he tells us about in the book. Um, he uh, has been uh, associated with the, Fairbank, with the Fairbank Center since the mid-1960s. Um, and he is currently uh, uh, a, an associate of the Fairbank Center. Um, that's one. The, that is the the the, the highest um, honor that we bestow on uh, colleagues who are not faculty at Harvard. But of course, his association with Harvard goes back much earlier. He was a student uh, uh, at Harvard. Uh, uh, receiving his uh, MA in Regional Studies of East Asia, the program that, uh, that I headed much later, and then his PhD uh, under uh, Fairbank himself and uh, under uh, Ben Schwartz. He's the author of at least a half dozen books that I could come up with off the top of my head. Um, and I was actually was really struck that, that uh, I will tell you the titles of, all, of several of these books in a moment. But I'm really struck that I actually remember, I literally do remember reading all of them. That is to say, I remember reading uh, China but and Christmas. I only remember six of them. <laughs> <laughs> I quickly go to the back and see. That six is pretty good. Um, so I remember reading China, uh, China and Christianity. Um, the, uh, the missionary movement and the growth of Chinese anti-foreignism. Uh, as an undergraduate, I remember reading um, Discovering History in China as a graduate student. And uh, Discovering History in China is a book that I literally use uh, um, certainly every semester. Uh, still more than 30 years after its, after its publication. And I know Mark and other colleagues who, who teach Chinese history feel the same way. Uh, it's also uh, a book that, um, so I teach my graduate students how to summarize books. And I say that you should be able to summarize any work of history in a, a sentence or two. Uh, Discovering History of China is, is not actually a book that they can summarize what they really need to do is memorize it. Uh, it's, it's, that, it's that important to understanding our field and how, and how it uh, emerged. Uh, I remember uh, reading history, uh, history in Three Keys later on in my graduate career and being inspired by that uh, and uh, speaking to history uh, more recently still. Um, history and Popular Memory, The Power of Story in Moments of Crises, of Crisis, sorry, uh, which was published in 2014, uh, I think is a, is, a, is a lovely expression of Paul's uh, widening ambition. Uh, it wasn't enough just to discover history in China. You had to discover history around the world. There are chapters on China, on France, the Soviet Union, England, uh, Israel, Palestine, and Serbia. Uh, and then his most recent publication, um, and actually in my defense, 
because I was a little bit involved in the, in the publication of this book, I've read this book at least four times. <laughs> so that should maybe make up for me forgetting one or, that may have been one or, one or two of the other titles maybe pushed out of my mind. Um, it was a tremendous honor uh, for the Fairbanks Center to publish uh, Paul's, auto Paul's not autobiography, to publish A Path Twice Traveled. Um, it was uh, wonderful to read it uh, and learn more about the history of the center to which, all of us, uh, to which all of us belong and participate and Paul's role in it and also Paul's contribution to uh, the profession, to the community of scholars and to uh, our understanding of history more broadly. So without further ado, please join me welcoming Paul Cohen. Thank you, uh, Michael, for not uh, asking me the question that you wanted to ask me, which isn't dealt with in the book and which I couldn't answer. Um, maybe it'll just come out. You never can tell. The writing of a, a career memoir is not just something that you do because it's the right time in your life uh, to do it. Although I suppose in some cases that's, the, that's true. Uh, it can also be a fascinating learning uh, experience. Uh, the seed that, can you all hear me? No. Yes? Good. Uh, the seed that grew into a full-blown memoir, uh, in my case, was a conversation I had with uh, Rao Shurung, the editor of the Chinese literary journal uh, Du Shu, uh, in October 2015 at a reception here at Harvard. She invited me to submit a piece to uh, the journal, and I wrote her a few months later from Hong Kong, um, suggesting a possible idea uh, for an article. In the course of a 60-year uh, career as a historian of China, my thinking about uh, Chinese history and about history in general uh, had undergone a number of shifts uh, and turns. And since I was quite well known among Chinese uh, historians, a number of my books having been brought out in multiple uh, Chinese language uh, editions, I thought it might be of some interest to describe in Dushu uh, for its readers the evolution of one non-Chinese scholar's thinking about Chinese history. Dr. Rao liked my suggestion and agreed to it, but alas, once I started uh, working on the piece, I realized that it was a much larger undertaking than I had anticipated, and I would never be able to even come close to the length limit suggested by uh, Du Shu. Um, so I, uh, my thinking was really, at this point, was that rather than a short journal article, what I really needed uh, to do was write something a good deal more substantial, probably resulting in a small book. As this change in plans was taking place, I realized that with the expanded uh, project, I would be able, in addition to tracing the development of my thinking about Chinese history, uh, to delve into some of the more hidden aspects, aspects of my career, still no, no secrets of the sort, of the autobiographical sort that you're looking for, Michael. Um, the backstories, for example, pertaining to the sometimes uh, thorny process, I was just putting it politely, of getting a work published. Uh, 
aside from enriching my own story, the material uh, on my encounters with presses over the years uh, may even be of help to younger scholars who are just beginning uh, to publish and often have little sense of what uh, the process uh, entails. This is a pretty fragile time uh, in the uh, career of a scholar. And one thing he or she needs to know is that publishing houses are run by human beings. And just as human beings sometimes err um, in their judgments, good presses don't always make good decisions. Conveying such information, uh, however, is not the principal aim uh, of this memoir by a long shot. The main point of the memoir is not to give advice and comfort uh, to the young. Uh, it's to share with readers, uh, older ones as well as young, uh, the sense of excitement and deep satisfaction that I have enjoyed uh, from, from the process of coming to grips um, with history as a discipline, and more specifically, the history of a country that, although very different from my own, uh, has turned out uh, as my understanding of history in general uh, has deepened to be not quite as different as I once thought. The main sources for the memoir, uh, my own writings and talks published and unpublished, uh, and the correspondence and notes, of course, that I have kept in my files over the years, along with an occasional phone conversation with a colleague which seemed important enough uh, to write a note on for my files. After completing a first draft of the memoir, it occurred to me that it might also be of interest to read some of the memoirs written by other historians, for which purpose I found Jeremy Popkin's uh, book, History, Historians, and Autobiography, uh, a marvelous guide. Although in places I have touched on aspects of my personal life uh, that clearly bore on my professional career, that is not in any sense, this is not in any sense an account of my private uh, existence. Uh, it is first and foremost the largely public story of my intellectual evolution as a historian uh, of China. Since the, a number of the books I've written have exerted considerable influence uh, on the field of Chinese history, both in the Europe, Euro-American uh, world and in, uh, and in, uh, in East Asia, uh, the memoir should be of interest to China historians and to people with a special interest in Chinese history. Parts of the memoir, memoir will, I hope, also be of interest to historians uh, in general. I have in mind in particular those sections that deal with discovering history in China, um, American historical writing on the recent Chinese past uh, that uh, Michael was just talking about, uh, history in three keys, the boxers as event, experience, and myth, speaking to history, the story of King Gojin in 20th century China, uh, and my most recent publication, History and Pop uh, popular, memory, popular Memory, The Power of Story in Moments of Crisis. On showing the first draft of the memoir to several uh, friends, uh, one or two of whom had nothing to do with Chinese history, um, each in a different way pointed uh, out the failure to contextualize my account uh, in terms of what was going on in the world um, or my personal life uh, at the time of 
writing. As one of them put it, it reads like you were sitting on a cloud somewhere, uh, flipping from one book to the next, uh, but there was no sense of who Paul Cohen was or where he was or what was going on in his life uh, or the world um, uh, during the course of his career. I got the message. And I made a serious effort in subsequent drafts to uh, to address the problem of uh, essentially the problem of context. Uh, the memoir is still primarily a public account rather than a private one, but now with a greater recognition of the key role uh, that my private life and happenings around the world um, have played at various junctures. Hopefully, uh, this, along with photos documenting my life and career, uh, which have been included in the published book, which I chose not to PowerPoint for your uh, benefit, um, will make it of greater interest uh, to people who are not China historians, or for that matter, historians of anything else. There were, uh, along the way, in the course of my career, a number of developments that uh, I hadn't really uh, expected. They were unanticipated. Um, a memoir is a history. In that respect, writing a memoir of my career as a historian uh, is very different from the building of that career in real time. For example, when I finished discovering history in China, I anticipated, uh, given my past experience with the Harvard University Press, which had published my first two books, that it would be accepted um, as a matter of course. What I get to do in the memoir is show how very wrong I was. The book was rejected or cold-shouldered uh, by not only Harvard, but by three other uh, uh, excellent presses um, as well before finally being accepted by Columbia. Clearly, we're dealing here with an example of the difference between the experienced past and the historically reconstructed past. Experience is outcome blind. We don't know how things are going to turn out. Uh, whereas in historical reconstruction, we know the outcome uh, in advance, and the historian's effort is directed toward explaining how it came about, which is what I do in chapter four of my memoir, where I give a detailed uh, blood and gore account of the ordeal I experienced um, in my efforts to get Discovering History in China published. Still another example uh, pertains to uh, the narrative account of my career in general. A lot of what I now know about what happened uh, in the course of my career is not stuff I knew at the outset. I didn't know while working on my first book, China and Christianity, that the next one would be an intellectual biography of Wang Tao, a 19th century reformer and pioneer Chinese journalist. And the same holds true uh, for subsequent books I wrote. Uh, in some instances, I had no idea at the outset uh, what the main themes of the book would be. After finishing History in Three Keys in 1997, for example, it was my intention to write a book on national humiliation, guochir, uh, in 20th century China. But in the course of exploring 
that topic, I kept running into the, the ancient story of Gojin, king of the state of Yue in the 5th century BCE. And the more I read about the Gojin story, the more uh, the clearer it became that it spoke not just to the theme of national humiliation, but to many other facets of Chinese, China's history in the 20th century as well. So if I stayed with plan A, I would have to omit vital parts of the Gojin story, uh, story's engagement with recent Chinese history, something I was increasingly reluctant to do. I extricated myself from this quandary uh, by shifting the focus of the book. Instead of national humiliation, it would be on the impact of the Gojen story in all of its facets, uh, including but not confined to national humiliation. A simple idea, but also a radical one, as it meant to shift both in the book's main focus and in the broader issues that would ultimately form its core, above all, the relationship between story and history. As a form of history, memoir embodies, a, mem a memoir embodies perspectives <clears throat> that were not present at the outset. Another example of this is the shift that can take place between the societal realities that pertain at the time your career is lived and the discoveries you make about these realities um, uh, long afterward from your vantage point as a memoir writer. What is interesting here is the new insight you get uh, when you look back over your life and apply your present consciousness uh, to the situations that existed many years before when social conventions were very different. For example, after spending the summer of 1960 uh, at Yale, uh, taking intensive Chinese language courses. I arrived in Taipei in September uh, of that year with my then wife, Andrea, and our young daughter, Joanna, uh, and to begin a 10-month program focused on spoken Chinese. Readers in the 21st century may, at the mention of my wife, wonder, and one of the outside readers I asked to read the manuscript raised this point quite explicitly, um, to wonder what were her career interests um, uh, and how it was decided that she would go to Taipei with me. As I look back on my fellow male graduate students uh, in Chinese studies at Harvard, not one, unless my memory fails me, which is possible, um, had a wife who had a career of her own. And this continued to be the case more or less after our arrival in Taipei when we became friends with uh, young American scholars, male scholars, from places other than Harvard. Whatever career aspirations the wives may have had, if they had any at all, were put on hold as they gamely followed their husbands into the field. This asymmetrical pattern with respect to male and female career aspirations began to change quite dramatically in the course of the 1960s, a reflection of the civil rights uh, movement uh, of, that, of that decade in America. But in the early 1960s, it was accepted 
as the norm that my wife would follow me not only to Taipei, but also as my teaching career got launched uh, to a succession of teaching posts in different parts of the United States. And Andrea was not alone uh, in this regard. Um, Natalie Zeman uh, Davis, uh, who later served as president of the American Historical Association, became passionately interested in history um, while an undergraduate at Smith College. Uh, but her professors, uh, just about all of whom were um, were uh, uh, were unmarried women, um, they assumed that a married woman, which she was, um, couldn't have a professional career. And although her husband was supportive and believed in equality of careers, the two of them took it for granted that she would go where his jobs were. This asymmetry, moreover, was by no means confined to the academic uh, world. Uh, there were dozens of other respects in which uh, the situations of men and women in U.S. society were, were far uh, from equal. equal. There are many restaurants in New York City in the early 60s where a woman couldn't go into the restaurant without a man uh, who was the guarantor of paying the bill when, when the, the meal was, was finished. As, as Massachusetts Senator uh, Eleanor Elizabeth Warren uh, put it, uh, women had for decades been, and I quote her, shut out of lots of things, end quote. Let me uh, turn to some of the core themes um, in my writing career. One such theme that was there from the beginning in my case was the contrast between insideness and outsideness. An abiding concern throughout my, much of my career has been my determination to get inside China, to reconstruct Chinese history as far as possible as the Chinese themselves uh, experienced it, rather than in terms of what people in the West thought was important, natural, uh, or normal. Uh, the idea here was to move beyond approaches to the Chinese past that suffered overmuch from Eurocentric or Western-centric uh, preconceptions. Such preconceptions represented the outsideness um, in the situation. The insideness, which I strongly endorsed, um, was what I eventually came to call the China-centered uh, approach, which started to take hold among American historians around 1970 or a few years uh, prior to that. One of the most important expressions of this approach was its repudiation, explicitly or implicitly, of the conventional paradigms uh, of the past, which began Chinese history uh, in the West and incorporated a Western measure of significance, and its replacement of these with a Chinese storyline, a storyline that far from grinding to a halt in 1800 or 1840 uh, and being preempted or displaced by the West, continued to be a central of, of, of central paramount importance right through the 19th century and on into the 20th. Where the consensus of earlier American scholarship had been that the decisive break between the modern period of Chinese history and the traditional period was the Opium War, a growing consensus after around 1970 
shifted to the view that the true watershed event of 19th century Chinese history was the Taiping Rebellion, which along with the Nian and Muslim uh, rebellions that arose in its wake, wreaked unprecedented physical and human devastation on the population of the Qing Empire. In time, I developed a somewhat more complicated understanding of the contrast between insideness and outsideness. Uh, viewed from one perspective, the outsideness of the historian, whether a European or Japanese historian uh, writing about the Chinese past or a male historian writing about women uh, or a white historian probing black uh, history, um, has the potential to misconstrue and distort, to introduce meanings alien to the material under examination. In such instances, the historian's outsideness uh, clearly poses a problem. And, what, and that was the position I emphasized in my early writing. But a number of colleagues took exception to um, uh, the strictness of this stand, arguing that uh, there were certain instances in which outsiders, say American historians of China, uh, might actually have an advantage over insiders, Chinese students of their own past. In the course of writing history in three keys and thinking long and hard about the differences uh, between, uh, uh, especially between the direct uh, experiencing of the past, quintessentially an insider perspective, and its later reconstruction by historians, inevitably outsiders, I came to accept this criticism recognizing that while the historian's outsideness uh, can indeed be a problem, it is a crucial aspect of what differentiates us from the original experiencers of the past and enables us in our role as historians to render the past fathomable and meaningful in ways generally unavailable to those directly involved. A quite different example of the contrast between insideness and outsideness is presented in the story of King Gojian uh, in 20th century China. The Gojian story was as familiar uh, to Chinese school children as the biblical stories of Adam and Eve or David and, and Goliath uh, are to American youngsters. Yet the story was almost completely unknown. Uh, to inhabitants of the American cultural world, even including serious students of the recent Chinese past. In speaking to history, my book on the influence of the Gojian story in 20th century China, I refer to stories like that of Gojian as insider cultural knowledge, uh, a form of knowledge that tends to be hidden from outsiders mainly because the ways in which it is acquired, transmission within the family setting, uh, early school lessons that are heavily story-centered, popular operatic arias heard on the radio, uh, and so on, are not generally available. Uh, to people who have not had the experience of growing up in a Chinese cultural milieu. Insider culture, uh, cultural knowledge is by no means uh, exclusive uh, to China. Uh, it's found in all cultures and is often relatively inaccessible to outsiders. Uh, 
The circumstances of its functioning and the degree of its hiddenness are, however, likely to differ from case to case. In China, uh, the mere mention of the proverb "washing uh, uh, on uh, sleeping on, on brushwood and tasting gall, uh, immediately calls to mind the main outlines of the Gojen story. Something comparable to this is often uh, true in the West as well. And in March of 2005, while driving back to Boston after visiting my son Nathaniel and his family, I was listening to On the Media, a national weekly radio program devoted to media criticism and analysis. The guest on the program uh, was Charles Lewis, the founder and from eight, 1989 until 2004, the director of the Center for Public Integrity, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization in Washington, D.C. that does investigative reporting and research on public policy issues. The program host, Bob Garfield, was discussing with Lewis the effectiveness of his center's work in bringing about constructive change. Let me ask you something, Don Quixote, uh, he quipped, not very encouragingly. Uh, what are your top three windmills that you've tilted uh, at that you thought deserved far more public attention? Um, uh, 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 but some, somehow amounted uh, to nothing. <clears throat> Instantly comprehending the allusion to the Cervantes character, uh, Don Quixote, an impractical dreamer whose repeated efforts to right the world's wrongs came to naught, and tilting at windmills a metaphoric reference to the idealistic, impractical uh, nature of Quixote's labors. Lewis proceeded to discuss a few of his least successful endeavors. A few minutes later, Garfield asked Lewis how often his efforts resulted in real change taking place. Lewis conceded that it probably wasn't more than 10% of the time. All right, Garfield interjected. Let me change mythic archetypes here. Never mind, Don Quixote. Let's talk about Sisyphus. Yeah, Lewis broke in. That might be more accurate. Uh, Garfield finished his interrupted sentence, describing Sisyphus pushing the boulder perpetually up the hill. But Lewis, it is clear, had understood the metaphor from the start and didn't need to have it decoded. In this radio exchange, names like Don Quixote and Sisyphus and phrases like tilting at windmills served as metaphors that even though not as wisely and widely prevalent in American society as Washington Changdan uh, in China, for many Westerners required uh, little further elucidation. If on the other hand, the conversation had taken place uh, before a listening audience of Chinese, uh, many of whom would not have been, uh, would not have been acquainted uh, with Don Quixote or the Sisyphus uh, stories, such decoding would have been uh, essential. Another theme that has cropped up periodically in my writing from the beginning to the present is the distinction between thinking and behavior that are culturally conditioned and thinking and behavior that are reflective of universal human attributes. Uh, 
Very early in my study of Wang Tao, I published an article in which I cautioned against overlooking those less visible aspects of modern Western civilization and the traditional civilization of China that, without in any sense being identical, nevertheless converged or overlapped. Such points of convergence between cultures that in other respects were so far apart, I suggested, could be significant in a number of ways. One of which was that in them we have a basic, a, a, a reflection of basic human responses to inherently human and hence to a degree supracultural uh, predicaments. Wang Tao in very different language, regularly made a distinction that was akin uh, to the one I made. During his visit to Europe in the late 1860s, after a speech before the graduating class at Oxford in 1868, he was asked by some of the graduates to compare <clears throat> to compare the Tao of Confucius and the Tao of Christianity. In both cases, he responded, Tao has its basis in humanity. In fact, it was precisely this quality, natural to human beings everywhere, that gave to the human enterprise its underlying unity, Da Tong. Uh, in grappling with Wang Tao's understanding of the common humanity underpinning the cultures of China and the West, I became sensitized to the general issue, and it became an increasingly important aspect of my historical uh, perspective in general. In my research on the boxers um, in summer, spring and summer of 1900, uh, when the struggle between the boxers and their foreign and Chinese Christian adversaries reached peak intensity. I was struck by the degree to which, at the time, this struggle, as well as the circumstances surrounding it, was understood by both sides in profoundly religious terms. I also noted the general tendency of each party to the conflict to view itself as acting in behalf of a supernatural force that was authentic and good, God or the gods, uh, and the other side is representing false gods that were at bottom either powerless or the very body embodiment of evil. What is remarkable is the degree to which contemporary Chinese, like the Westerners, viewed everything that happened in the world, including whether it rained or not, as being in the control of heaven uh, or the gods. The main new development in my evolution as a historian, not just of China, but in general, was a fresh appreciation of the importance of story and storytelling uh, in history. Although my interest in story didn't become explicit uh, until the closing years of the last century when I began to explore the part uh, the Gojen saga took in 20th century China, I was consciously unconsciously starting to appreciate the importance of story or narrative uh, at some point in the mid-1980s uh, in connection with the tripartite approach uh, I had adopted by that time in my research on the boxers. In the prologue to part one of History in Three Keys, I distinguished between experience, which is messy, complicated, and opaque, and history, which brings order and clarity uh, into the chaos. As I wrote at the time, 
The problem basically had to do with how we went about defining the relationship between history in the sense of the history that historians write and reality in the sense of the history that people make and directly experience. This has been a quite controversial issue in the history field as uh, as you are doubtless aware. Uh, some individuals, like the late Hayden White, have taken the position that there is a fundamental discontinuity between history and reality. History, they believe, is basically narrative in form, uh, while reality is not. Therefore, when historians write history, they impose on the past a design or structure that is alien to it. Other individuals, among whom I have found David Carr to be one of the clearest and most persuasive, uh, argue that, and I quote him, narrative structure pervades our very experience of time and social existence, independently of our contemplating the past as historians, end quote. Since narrative is, for Carr, an essential component of the past reality historians seek to elucidate, the relationship between history and reality, or as he puts it, narrative and everyday life, um, is one marked not by discontinuity, but by continuity. My stance on this point lies somewhere between these polar alternatives, although it's closer by far uh, to Carr's. I agree with Carr that narrative is a basic component of everyday existence, not only for individuals, but also for communities. And therefore, the narrativization of the historian does not in itself create a disjuncture between the experienced past and the historically reconstructed past. However, there are other characteristics of the process of historical reconstruction as practiced that do create, if not a complete disjuncture, at least a very different set of parameters from those demarcating immediate experience. At the bare minimum, all historical writing, even the best of it, entails radical simplification and compression of the past. An event such as the Boxer episode that took several years to unfold and spread over much of North China is transformed into a book of a few hundred pages that can be held in the hands and read from start to finish uh, in several days. Although the objective of the historian is first and foremost to understand what happened in the past and then explain it to his or her readership. I would also caution that there is an oversimplified, oversimplification buried in the neat contrast between the experienced past and the historically reconstructed past that needs to be addressed. The experienced past may well be messy and chaotic uh, to the historian, but it is not to the immediate experiencer. Um, it's not that there isn't mess and chaos in people's lives, but our lives to ourselves are not messy and chaotic, or at least not generally so. And it's precisely here that the narrative function at the level of individual personal experience is so important. As we live our lives, we instinctively place them in a narrative 
framework. In the language of psychology, uh, Daniel Schachter uh, writes, quote, memory is a central part of the brain's attempt to make sense of experience and tell coherent stories about it. These tales are all we have of our pasts, and so they are potent determinants of how we view ourselves and what we do, end quote. In other words, we tell stories to ourselves that make sense of our experiences, biographical, not historical sense. So it isn't entirely correct to say, paraphrasing Jeffrey Braithwaite, the narrator in Julian Barnes's novel, Flaubert's Parrot, that books explain while in life things just happen. In life also, there is a powerful need for understanding and explanation, which all of us experience subjectively every moment of every day. After a good deal of ruminating, it eventually occurred to me that by the very act of disaggregating what the boxers were all about and suggesting in some detail the different ways in which we might go about understanding them, I had gained greater access to the part of that story played, that the, to the part that story played in, in their history. Predictably, this came to me initially in my exploration of the mythologization of the boxer phenomenon, the final part of the book, but the part that I wrote first. The contents of the mythologization chapters in History in Three Keys, it gradually dawned on me, were awash with stories of all kinds. As I became more sensitized to the operation of story and storytelling, it became increasingly clear that the topics dealt with in the experience section of the book, drought, magic, female pollution, spirit possession, rumor, death, uh, were also bursting at the seams uh, with stories. Finally, the fresh understandings of the historically reconstructed past that I gained in the course of writing history in three keys strengthened in my thinking the ways historians, too, engage in storytelling. Story had now become an important part of the conceptual apparatus with which I approached history writing uh, in general. <clears throat> My next book, the book on the influence of the Gojen story in 20th century China, was related to history in three keys in a number of ways. Most conspicuously, its focus on a well-known humiliation-revenge motif centered on the story of King Gojen uh, demonstrated the potential of this story as a patriotic narrative especially during the 1920s and 1930s when China lay under Japanese threat. But more importantly, the ways in which the story was adapted and readapted to successive crises called to mind the changing myths or stories about the boxers that were created at different points in the 20th century. Much as myths represented different ways of extracting from the boxer past the messages mythologizers wanted to instill in people's minds in the present, fresh versions of the Gojen story were designed, consciously or unconsciously, to speak to the shifting concerns of Chinese throughout the 20th century. 
The Gojian book also served as a point of departure for the multiple story history interactions dealt with in my most recent book, uh, History and Popular Memory, The Power of Story in Moments of Crisis. Although one of the chapters in that book focuses on the Gojian story, others deal with Serbia, France, Britain, Israel, uh, and the Soviet Union. Uh, this, is, this was my first book that was not primarily a China book. Uh, <clears throat> indeed, a major part of my motivation for writing it was to place China in a wider world setting and thereby make it less idiosyncratic uh, and exotic. I made the distinction earlier between aspects of my understanding as a historian that were there from the start of my career uh, that only, uh, and aspects that only emerged later uh, in my thinking. Ironically, history and popular memory in a very real sense embodied both of these aspects. A major theme of the book is a supracultural phenomenon uh, that I describe in my memoir as, uh, quote, a different sort of world history, not the conventional kind based on conjunctures, comparisons, and influences, but one that is manifested in recurring patterns, clearly bearing a family resemblance to one another, yet independently arrived at and very possibly rooted in certain human propensities, above all, the universality of storytelling in the human experience that transcend the specificities of culture and place. What's interesting is that this supracultural, universally human dimension, which was part of my intellectual armory from an early point in my writing career, now became firmly joined to storytelling, an aspect of my historical thinking that only began to come to the fore in the 1980s when I started to think about the ingredients in what was to become history in three keys. Once I became convinced of the importance of stories and storytelling, it became, in one form or another, a core component of my thinking as a historian. I had encountered it initially in the shifting myths created about the boxers over time. It later proved central to my understanding of the protean character of the Gojen story, which took on different guises in response to different circumstances. And it lay at the heart of the popular memory described in my latest book. In that book, I make a clear distinction between popular memory and historical uh, and critical history. Uh, but although for historians this distinction uh, is of paramount importance, I also note that it is routinely blurred in the minds of non-historians and often historians themselves. Um, and the historian's truth is frequently not able to compete with the power of a compelling story from the past that, while professing to be an account of what actually happened, in fact, has been seriously distorted by myth or, popular, or political manipulation. From the historian's point of view, critical history is generally to be preferred to popular memory. I mean, that's what we do, right? Um, but the relationship between the two is far more ambiguous and complicated than is commonly acknowledged. One reason for this 
is that popular memory often embodies a real historical component. And it's not always easy for non-historians, and in many instances, historians themselves, to distinguish clearly between what is fact and what is fiction. Another reason is that historians in our efforts to reconstruct the real past are generally, if not inevitably, faced with an insufficiency of evidence. The more complex the past under scrutiny, uh, the greater the insufficiency, which forces us to fill in the blank spots by inferring what we think took place. The trouble is, it's hard to keep these inferences uh, from reflecting the values and assumptions uh, that happen to be dominant in the society in which we currently live and work, which means that even as we endeavor to challenge the old myths that encumber people's understanding of the past, we end up, however involuntarily, introducing new myths into our accounts. This takes me, in a sense, back to the core ambiguities uh, with which the final chapter of my memoir begins. The chapter is titled, Then and Now, The Two Histories. In the opening paragraph, I write the following. At various points in this memoir, I have alluded to the double meaning of the word history. History refers to what happened then, what took place in the past. But it also, it's also used to refer uh, to how historians view the past now, how we understand and write about it. In this particular case, I happen to be the principal figure in both phases, the then and the now. Hence the title, uh, A Path Twice Traveled, My Journey as a Historian of China. But memoirs are only one form of history, and a highly singular one at that. There are many other forms, and these other forms often raise issues that memoir writers uh, uh, tend to ignore because they're not of immediate concern. For example, the past that memoir writers seek to know, uh, seek to know what, what happened then, um, encompasses a recent and well-defined period of time generally the subject's adult life, and tends to be focused mainly on a single individual. Therefore, memoirists, at least if they are writers, only have to tell their readers what books and articles they've written, the main themes in their work, the accolades and awards they've won, the criticisms encountered, and so on. Of course, this is a deliberately, deliberately oversimplified depiction of what one is actually likely to find in a memoir, given that the writer faces countless choices um, and is free to decide what to include and what not to include. But in the final analysis, it remains a relatively simple operation, especially compared to what a historian of, say, the French Revolution uh, has to contend with, where things uh, got a lot more complicated. The past that a historian of the French Revolution seeks to know is about a huge number of diverse people, not a single person. Its spatial embrace, moreover, is vast, and it can never come close to being grasped in full, partly because many of the things that, that took place uh, were never recorded, and partly because much that was recorded has been forgotten. In addition, our French Revolution historian 
in shaping the picture he or she wants to convey, will also consciously or un unconsciously include certain items of information in his or her account and exclude other items. All historians, after all, French Revolution historians, as well as memoir writers, have personal agendas. Which brings me to the related matter of how historians, including memoir writers, view the past now, how we understand and write about it. There will always be gaps that need closing, blank spots that need to be filled. But as historians endeavor to do this closing and filling, we have no choice but to do so in the language of our own day to tell a story that comes as close as possible to reconstructing what actually took place then, but in a way that speaks meaningfully to people living now. In other words, historians, memoirists, as well as French Revolution scholars, must be polyglot, conversant in the language of the present, but also to the extent humanly possible in the language of the past. And it's the need to move back and forth between these two utterly different realms, each posing its own special problems of understanding. That is perhaps the greatest difficulty we face in our work. It's not a difficulty that can ever be entirely overcome, and certainly the difficulty is greater in direct proportion to the distance between then and now. But as any seasoned historian will affirm, grappling with the challenge, even embracing it, is one of our greatest sources of fulfillment as historians, taking us to the heart of the mysteries we seek to clarify and make less opaque. Thank you. That's it? Okay. Why don't you sit? Thanks so much, Paul, for that. Uh, well, thank you for the wonderful talk, and thank you also for the uh, the uh, the wonderful book. Um, to quote or to paraphrase Julian Barnes again, um, books don't just happen. Um, books are crafted, uh, and one of the things I really uh, enjoyed most about the book and, and about your talk as well is to get a sense of you as a craftsman. Um, the, the, uh, there's an expression, it probably translates culturally better than Sisyphus or, or Don Quixote. Um, this is a book about how the sausage gets made. Uh, and if you're interested as, as historians and, and as scholars and as authors, many of people in the room and students in the room, if you're interested in, in how the sausage gets made, this is a book with, which is full of insight into, into that. Um, one of the, the messages that, that I think comes across very clearly um, is that you're a very thoughtful sausage maker. Uh, that you really do, I mean, we all, when we write our books, we talk about the methodological issues we confront. Um, but there's something more profound going on in your work. Uh, and it came out very clearly in your, in your summary of a number of themes that have shaped your work over the years. The, um, the question of inside versus outside, the question of cultural coding, the question of uh, thinking and behavior that is culturally conditioned versus thinking and behavior that is universal, the issues of story and narrative. So I want to start the questioning with a question about craft. Um, 
First of all, to what extent are these themes in your mind as you put together these individual books? Or to what extent did they only become evident to you after the book is completed? And to the extent that these are themes, you, you write that you are, you, 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 you write about your progressive sensitization to these issues. Mm -hmm. To the extent that these are issues that you are sensitive to as you are writing, what's your process of incorporating them? That is to say, how do you make them part of your craft, of your crafting? I think that the themes exist, um, come to come into existence earlier than I am aware of their coming into existence, so that they get unconsciously incorporated into uh, whatever craft I have, um, and only I only become conscious of what I have done um, at a subsequent point for one of any number of uh, of. of of reasons, um, I, it's a it's a good question. It's a uh, the the, uh, the the distinction between um, how much of what uh, happens in human behavior is culturally conditioned, of how much of it is humanly conditioned, because all human beings share uh, things alight across cultures, um, is a question that Ben Schwartz used to raise frequently, um, in his teaching. And I'm sure that, uh, that influenced me to, to think, um, in, in those, uh, in those terms. Um, the, uh, the insideness versus outsideness was more, uh, uh, developed from a reaction that I had to, uh, after going along uh, uh, full throttle um, with uh, China's response to the West and being influenced by the Deng Fairbank volume um, uh, to a very great extent, that's how I learned about Wang Tao uh, initially, how I was introduced to him. Um, I, uh, I began uh, to think about is this a little bit too simple? Is it, is it really that simple? Isn't it more complicated than that? And so I started um, thinking, I, I started thinking in a reactive uh, mode against um, uh, China's response to the West as being, of course China responded to the West, but you know, it's just, uh, the, as I was uh, mentioning a couple of days ago to, a, to, to another friend, I was asked uh, about six months ago uh, to read a, uh, the manuscript of a book by um, uh, Jenny Huangfu Dei, uh, who is a young historian at uh, Skidmore College. Um, and it's about, uh, it's about the early, late Qing, early 20th century uh, Qing diplomatic missions uh, to the West. And uh, the old view of this is that it, uh, this is sort of incorporated into the China's response to the West, um, I think. What she uh, does beautifully is show that there wasn't one West and there wasn't one China. Um, there were young 
people going on these missions who had just finished their study of language at the Tungwanguan, and there were other people who had been bureaucrats for 30 years um, and had a totally different approach. When they wrote letters back, uh, they wrote different kinds of letters depending upon whether they were writing to bosom friends back home or a, a beloved brother or sister or to uh, colleagues in the Zhongli Um In other words, who you're writing to influences what you say. Um, and they also were had different personalities. Uh, uh, one of the guys who was on one of these missions was just fascinated by the games that Westerners played. And he was fascinated in China by the games that Chinese played. Um, others couldn't care less uh, about that. And so, so it, it, what, she, what she brings out very clearly is that there, uh, there wasn't a Chinese response to a West. Uh, there were Chinese responses to the West, just as there were Western responses uh, uh, to China. Um, so I, it, it, it's just, uh, uh, she also was influenced by, uh, by Ben Schwartz, uh, who recognized this, these kinds of, um, of pitfalls that, that one could get into, even though I don't think Ben ever directly confronted uh, um, Fairbank uh, uh, on the China's response to the West uh, paradigm. Mm -hmm. All right, I, I, this is not one of those sessions where we're going to run out of questions because I have about eight, but I am going to throw it out to the audience. It's not a formal, a usual formal academic talk. So we have this practice at the Fairbank Center and many venues at Harvard that we ask you to introduce yourself and your academic danway or whatever. I think we can depart from that today, but if you like, when you ask your question, I know we have lots of old friends. If you like, preface your question by telling us how you know Paul. But you don't have to. <laughs> you're still trying to get at my private life. You <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Roger. Well, that, that last question you asked um, uh, appeals to me because... Uh, I can't hear that. Uh, my, first, my first... I'm Roger DeForge, um, uh, Professor Emeritus at State University of New York. Buffalo. Um, my first book was actually uh, reviewed by Paul Cohen. <laughs> so that was my first contact with Paul. Um, it was Hold on a second. Uh, and sitting next to me uh, is uh, Paul Schrecker, uh, uh, John Schrecker. Sitting next to me is John. Is that working? Yeah. Yeah. Is John Schrecker, who. Um, recommended the publication uh, of my doctoral dissertation. Uh, so I feel like I'm uh, among family here. Um, I, 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 I found your book on um, the um, boxers, The Three Keys. I think that's your best book that I've read. Uh, <laughs> it may not be, uh, it may not be uh, the best book in your view, but I, I, I'd be interested in how you appraise your own work over time. <laughs> and where you feel you really uh, hit what you wanted to hit and other places where maybe you didn't. Um, the, the book on Gojian um, was very interesting to me because I'm working on a very similar problem. Had you heard of Gojian previously? Uh, I think I probably had heard of him, but I, I never heard of him. Probably would not. And have I spoke known to a number of uh, fellow modern China specialists, uh, whether they had uh, who the, uh, heard, uh, whether they knew this guy Gojian was. Never heard of him. Right. Uh, well, and obviously, students of ancient China knew about Gojian, but a right. lot of students of modern China didn't know much about ancient China. 
Well, well, my question about the GoGen book is that um, I was really excited when I saw that you were tackling that issue, and I think you tackled the early part of that story really well, and perhaps the latter, the latter part of the story, that is the 20th century handling of the GoGen story. But in between, there were a couple of thousand years of history, and I didn't find that. And it seems to me that if we're going to try to move out of the outsider position into the insider position, we need to take account of the whole of a history and not just two parts which seem to be quite different uh, and just compare those two parts. I didn't, I didn't catch all of your, your question, but it, uh, um, there is another point that I would make about the, the insideness-outsideness uh, phenomenon, and that is that um, uh, Gogen was not a... Uh, a, a was not insider cultural knowledge only for the Chinese. Um, he was equally uh, insider cultural knowledge for the Vietnamese and the Japanese and the Koreans, uh, because they had been um, th their intellectuals had been uh, nourished and, and trained in the Chinese um, academic uh, traditions and Chinese classics. Um, and so on. So language, and they were familiar with the Chinese language, Chinese writing system. That's what they dealt with. So the um, uh, so language obviously had something to do with uh, how much of insider cultural knowledge was able to move to another uh, culture, um, uh, which uh, uh, which which was not in the same language uh, family. You know, well, I'm sure there are lots of other questions, so we can carry this on afterward. Yeah. I found I found the Gojin book actually really discouraging because it, <laughs> because it just reminded me of how much of this coded, how much how much of what I read was culturally coded in ways I could just get the tiniest little, the tiny little fragment of. I remember I remember when I was learning Chengyu, learning Wu Chandan, yeah, but never imagining all of the depths and layers of coding that. That uh, incredible. Uh, anyways, but it it works in reverse too. Yeah. So what do you mean by in reverse? Well, uh, when Chinese think that they're uh, that they're 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 grasping, you know, what something some aspect of American life is all about, and they only really go, grasp uh, one dimension of it. The other right. stuff is sure. Subtle. But it could, you could, I mean, you could also say reverse in a different sense, which is that the 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 the, the layerings that even a Chinese person knows some of the layerings. Right. But not all of the layers. Right, right, right. Um, Professor Elliott. Thanks so much, Paul. Uh, in uh, so Mark Elliott and uh, EALC in history here. I think I met you for the first time in 1984 when in Fred Wakeman's seminar at Berkeley, we opened Discovering History in China for the first time. I didn't meet you in person, it's though. A, it, it was a, a little small group, and yeah, I remember. Yeah. I didn't meet you in person, I don't think, uh, really, until I came here uh, in 2000 for the first time. I wanted to ask you a question uh, that's been on my mind a lot the last six months to a year, which is whether... Uh, we as historians of China have not failed in some very important way. And I refer to the abysmal state of discourse around China in the United States today, and not just in the United States, but I'll confine it to the United States, where 
most of the sort of nuance for which you are justifiably well-known and which you've just spoken about, most of the nuance in conversations around China today, certainly in Washington, D.C., and among policymakers, is lost completely. And uh, we are entering, uh, it seems, a, uh, an era... Uh, in which um, you are either for China and any sort of notion of multiple Chinas is, is completely washed away. You are either for China or you're against China. And I don't know... Very good formula for understanding. Which is certainly not. And, uh, you know, this is having all sorts of ramifications in uh, the ways in which academic exchange is happening today between American universities, including Harvard, and Chinese universities. Uh, you, I'm sure you must have seen the story in the Times two days ago where many of China's most noted experts on the United States who would catch cultural coding are being denied visas by the U.S. State Department. So I just wondered what your, uh, what your, what your reading of the situation is and where you see, uh, if you see, some sort of bright spot here where historians, perhaps, maybe, maybe you have a, a reading of where we went wrong in failing to uh, ensure that a, a sophisticated conversation, sophisticated and informed discourse and understanding of China took root, or what we might do differently going forward. Well, uh, uh, Chinese scholars, uh, Chinese intellectuals, like American intellectuals, um, are they come out of a particular society, society they live in, society they deal with morning, noon, and night, um, and it's uh, it's the rare one who is able uh, to uh, get out of the um, the uh, the this sort of narrow-gauged uh, framework and see things in nuanced, uh, subtler, um, subtler ways. Um, uh, I've been reading uh, recently, this is uh, uh, Wang Gongwu's um, uh, work in progress, it's not yet published, um, on, it's basically on how the theme of the word. This is a guy who writes a book a year, uh, not like you and me. Um, he is interested in how China becomes part of the world, um, but he's also influenced. He's also interested in how, in becoming part of the world, Chinese are reaching back into the Chinese past and selecting aspects of that past that they feel strengthen their position um, in the world today. Um, it's, 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 it's fast. He does a very good job of, the, uh, uh, of this, and it's not, it's not simple. Um, when he deals with uh, Xi Jinping, um, he refers to uh, the authoritarianism and so on, um, but he doesn't see him as a, uh, as a replica of Mao. Um, in many ways, uh, he's, uh, he sort of has elements of Mao, but elements of uh, Deng Xiaoping um, uh, as well. Um, and and elements that, that really go back to neither of them, um, and that he's uh, and that he's uh, sort of 
built into uh, a um, uh, a uh, uh, I, I, w I don't know that I would call it a third um, uh, set of uh, possibilities, but maybe it is. Um, uh, there's. Uh, uh, it's it's just it's a very very complicated uh, business. I I do have um, a few uh, Chinese colleagues that I've you know uh, one of whom had translated uh, some some work of mine um, and who I've seen on a number of occasions and he's extremely subtle, extremely um, aware of of uh, nuanced uh, differences um, in. Uh, in, in in viewpoints, um, but most of them are not. And but I and I I suspect that that's true in the West as well. I mean, it wasn't uncommon a few years ago to think, well, if the Chinese will just um, become uh, develop an economy that's a little bit more like ours and become a, a more prosperous society, which over the past 30 years they absolutely have uh, become, uh, that they'll become more liberal politically. Um, that connection is a connection which is, it comes right out of our uh, history, and we're trying in a sense unconsciously to apply it universally um, when there are so many variables um, that are not taking into, into, into consideration. And so you end up with an oversimplification and it hasn't happened. And there are a lot of voices today that are saying it's not likely to happen, that the Chinese are not likely to ever become um, a liberal democrat. Are we a liberal democratic country? We're changing too. <laughs> it's a... If it's, I'm going to take chair's privilege and just follow up on Mark's question, if that's okay. So there's actually a book about about that oversimplification, James Mann's The China Fantasy, right? Which is which is precisely about about how oversimplifications have shaped U.S. policy. So I want to just push you a little bit on Mark's question: what What's our job? What's our responsibility? What's our role as historians to poke at that fantasy, to undermine that fantasy, to challenge that fantasy? Could you ask me a harder question? All right. I don't have an answer. I really don't. Um, I think that we, there, there's no question about the fact that there is a role for historians. Um, uh, uh, we can influence Chinese. Um, we can influence Americans by understanding Chinese in a certain way. Um, but it's... Uh, uh, there's no simple answer. It's just right. uh, Esther. Thank you, es Esther Hu on the faculty at BU, and um, Paul. I I I think we first crossed paths at the Joe Eschrick uh, talk last March, when you said something that uh, said something. You had a Mao quotation, and uh, and it's in my first book, so I was very excited that I went up to you afterwards and I said, wow, blah, 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 blah. And then you said, well, that's a well-known quotation. <laughs> and so, so that's when we first crossed paths. And I first crossed paths with both you and Elizabeth at one of the visiting scholar presentations at the very end of the year, last, uh, I think it was also last spring. I think it was in May. Anyway, I read your book 
and I admire it. And uh, the memoir. This. Yes. Oh, you, you've already read yes, it. Oh, yes, huh? I read it. You, you told you told me about it when you were serving as discuss discussant right. for right, a right, uh, right, right. for something in the, uh, <coughs> the Engine Institute. Anyway. So I loved especially the strategies that you mentioned on pages 141 and 149 regarding how to make one's work more accessible to an audience. So you mentioned, one, everydayness of history, you compare comparisons to baseball, two, cross-cultural comparisons, rain and the supernatural for two cultures, three, emphasizing how unexotic, uh, even, uh, what is it, universally human was the understanding of the boxers. So I find that immensely helpful and, and in connection to Michael's question to you regarding your craft. Mm. So for me as a writer, this is just immensely helpful. But for me, the clincher was because I don't have a PhD in history, my PhD is in English. And so in trying to understand Chinese history, I got to page 234 where you mentioned the periodizations of uh, uh, for China, going from the traditional period to the modern period, it's not the Opium War from, you know, the 18, 1839 to 1842. It's actually the Taiping Rebellion from <clears throat> 1850 to something, something. And for me, that was, I was like, wow, I, I didn't know that. And I, I, I'm sure everybody else in the room knows that. So it's like, this is new information for me. And I just really appreciate learning about so much. <laughs> yeah, I, I, one of the uh, things that uh, th this came out in the, uh, or at least there was an allusion to this in my reference to uh, the uh, the common humanity, in a sense, that the boxers and their adversaries had, in that they were both religious, they both believed that the other side uh, was imprisoned by a false religious false religious beliefs uh, that were the embodiment of evil and so on um, it uh, uh, and and yet um, when we think of the boxers as the other, we think of the boxers as being the very antithesis of anything um, civilized. Uh, if, if we're thinking of them, let's say, around 1900, um, when we get to uh, the 1930s, uh, the Westerners are seeing uh, the Chinese stirrings of real Chinese nationalism as being echoes of boxerism. Um, so they're seeing uh, something that the Chinese regard in a positive sense, um, in a negative sense, because the nationalism is targeting uh, Westerners um, in the 1930s and in many, in many instances. But it seems to me that a lot depends on you, know, you can take any subject and you can build a framework around it and it can be a narrow, tight framework or a somewhat looser framework or a very loose framework. And the answers that you get to a, uh, to a single set of questions are going to differ from one framework uh, to the next so that it's, it's awfully important to take into account in the most rigorous way possible, um, the context for the questions that you're raising. Um, and 
I have not always done that myself, um, but uh, but I, I see the the value of of doing it, um, and I think that that would be you know a way of approaching say uh, Xi Jinping um, uh, in China today. Uh, see a bad guy because he doesn't do the right things in the human rights area, um, uh, like the, the problems with the uh, Xu uh, Run uh, at Tsinghua uh, right right now. Um, or is he a good guy because he's doing something that in his hard-nosed way he thinks is absolutely essential for China to become to fulfill its dream, uh, uh, or the dream that he has for uh, for China, and there I think you will find that there are Chinese on both sides of this this issue. Some of whom support uh, Xi, Jinping, uh, 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 Xi Jinping, and others of whom um, uh, disagree uh, with him. Uh, well, that's fine, uh, but I think we have to recognize that complexity, um, and that's something that in our ceaseless effort to make the past clear and comprehend comprehendable uh, that we frequently uh, tend to tend to not give adequate attention to uh, complexity is hard to deal with complexity doesn't uh, uh, offer you simple um, straightforward uh, positions uh, about complex situations. It, that's, that's, that's the whole thing. Um, and so I think it's, it's it, habitually, we don't think in complex terms. Habitually, we're looking for a way of simplifying um, things. And uh, that's something I think good historians um, have to be wary of, whether in the process of being wary of, uh, of, of that level of complexity, they're going to be more better equipped to uh, to make a dent in Chinese thinking about America? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Rudolf? Uh, yeah. uh, I know, Paul, I think if I recall accurately since 81, and uh, in a rather provocative manner. Uh, I was a a young scholar had written a book on something where, uh, by any standard, I knew nothing about, namely religion in the Taiping Tianguo, and uh, uh, it, or I had never written a word about the 19th century. And uh, well, and then I thought, well, I better show it to some specialists, you know, who might have a critical view on that, you know. So I sent it to to uh, Fred Wakeman and to Paul, both of whom I did not know. And uh, then, uh, I, as a matter of fact, I came here because I came here for a talk. I dropped it on his desk and said, well, I would be very happy if I could have the manuscript back tomorrow morning, you know. So, uh, which was just 200 pages or something, no big deal. And uh, so, uh, and well, I must say to this day, to both of them, I'm extremely grateful that they had a sort of sober look at it and says, well, this guy is a nobody, you know, but he has a point, you know, so let's get that published, you know. So, and that was a kind of generosity and a willingness to engage with outsiders. They could have just said, kind of, you know, who is that? Uh, and have thrown the waste paper basket. And they didn't. And I must say, I was extremely grateful to that. But here comes my question. Now, there had been a, 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 some criticism of an early manuscript, as you said, you know, that somehow you as a person were not really in that manuscript. And I think... On a different point, I perhaps would like to take that up again. In your presentation today, I haven't had time to read the book now, so in your presentation today, somehow 
the particular time in which you lived, the political shifts through which you lived, seemed to be completely outside of any importance. You know? So you have an internal history of how your own uh, things proceeded. Well, but soberly speaking, you lived through you know, uh, the 60s when you were in a large transformation of basically entire historical thinking. The approach came about. You lived through the end of the Cold War. And uh, now there is, of course, a self Grand, sort of, how should I say, a self-gratifying story of historians. Namely, we are these people who are just interested in truth, you know, and we are exploring these things and so on and so forth. Now, if you look through 20th century history, you know, that story is not very convincing, you know, because the moment the temperature goes up, you go to a war situation or something like that, you have a very sizable amount of historians who are willing to bend their craft, you know, to whatever propaganda purpose is just in time. And this is independent of where they are, whether they are in Germany, United States, France, England, or wherever it is. And so you have, as a matter of fact, historians being part very much of a kind of a ideological warfare, propaganda warfare, and debate there. And uh, then you, of course, have lived in a, in a place and in a time where you are not on a short leash of a master narrative and its changes. So you don't, nobody tells you, institutionally speaking, you know, this you cannot write, you know, this is a wrong topic, you know, and this you have to frame in the following manner, you know. In China, that is, as a matter of fact, quite definitely the case. You know, you have an established master narrative and the pressure on scholars to adjust to it and fit to it is very high. But you have informal pressures which are also very high, maybe fashions of the moment, fashions of the time. And I would even think that, you know, the China-centered approach you pushed forward on moment, you know, has a historical particular context, namely an effort to get out of an imperialist narrative, you know, of imposing things on others, try to get, you know, the local voices to speak, you know, to be articulate, you know, to, to take them seriously. And of course, that instantly comes with the problem, namely, who is that local voice? You know, namely the question, is that, you know, the official master narrative of the Communist Party? Is that the local voice? How do you find it? You know, who articulates it? How do you get to it? And I think if you tell us a little bit about your interaction with the time circumstances, your action of your historical research with the particular time circumstances, how that might have influenced, I think that would be very nice. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let me think about that. <laughs> <laughs> you can maybe can you give us one example where the larger the larger the larger political context shaped something that you wrote with the benefit of hindsight? Um, in the introduction to um, discovering history in China, I bring in the Vietnam War, uh, sorry, uh, in the introduction to uh, history, discovering history in China, I bring in uh, the, the the Vietnam War, um, uh, not so much the anti-war movement, um, uh, but the degree to which um, Americans assumed that uh, we saw our 
modernity as being a good. Um, but the manner in which our modernity was expressed from the Vietnamese point of view was in terms of killing and wounding uh, and, and hurting. Um, and so, uh, and, and I was aware of this when I was writing um, uh, the, the book, and I think it probably influenced my uh, attraction to uh, the China-centered um, uh, approach. Uh, a Vietnam-centered approach would have resulted in a very different set of responses to what was going on uh, in America, uh, militarily, and so on, um, than in fact was the case. Uh, and there was, of course, a large, there were great um, differences among Americans at the time, as you um, no doubt are aware. Um, That's it's it's a good question. It's a bit, uh, That's actually a really good example because, of course, so much of discovering history in China is exactly about situating intellectual shifts yeah. in the in their time. China. Hi, I'm Joanna Handlin Smith. I first met Paul. Uh, maybe can you hear me? Not easily. Oh, really. <laughs> It's my it problem, on? not yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, roughly 45 years ago, when he and John Schrecker, who just left, um, were co-editing a volume, and um, I recall to this day, I can remember that his youngest daughter, Emily, was about five, and uh, he still has, he had then... Uh, Barcelona chairs in his Lincoln house, the same ones he now has in his Belmont house. So how much um, veracity is there? <laughs> okay, so my question, just surveying, um, you know, you've, you've been in this for 60 years, a bit longer than I, um, but I've been there roughly 45, 50. Um, and the contrast of your account, which is granted you work on uh, 19th and 20th century, and I work on the late Ming, but I'm just wondering whether the enormous changes in the scholarly field that have taken place over these past decades, which includes the opening up of China and the jettisoning of um, you know, Feng Jian is a paradigm for looking at everything in the past, um, which includes the interactions with Chinese scholars who come here and learn a bit about um, Western historiography as we, or some of us, go to China and learn more about current trends. Um, the availability of materials, the opening up of archives, that allows one to study the subaltern. Um, I just wonder um, whether you sense that these changes in, schol in the scholarly context has um, changed your approach. And I maybe to make it a little easy, I wonder if the book on Gojian, on cultural coding, could have been written. Would you have even bothered to have written such a book uh, 60 years ago as your first book? Um, so that's my question. 
I'm not sure I got uh, the meat of that uh, uh, question. Well, you, you've done very well, as um, Rudy has said, in track tracing the evolution of your um, right. moving from one problem to right. another. Meanwhile, all sorts of changes are taking place in the scholarly world in which you participate, have participated. Amy, you don't think that the points that I made in my presentation are valid for all time? And uh, <laughs> I just want you to make it more explicit. Yeah. I mean, you did mention from outsider to insider. You right. did, but right. you know, um, where does storytelling um, or the the value placed on story is that a reaction to your own evolution? Is it something that you've um, from somehow participating in this larger? Yeah, story? I mean, I, 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 I um, one of the great experiences in my life was going to um, going abroad in the summer of 1954 to study French in Paris. Um, and it wasn't uh, studying French in Paris that was the great, that was the, uh, the core experience that was really important. It was being outside of North America for the first time in my life, going to restaurants, ordering steak and, and French fries, um, drinking a whole bottle of Van Ordinaire uh, by myself, uh, just living in a way which was culturally inconsistent, going to a restaurant and being assured that it, the food was going to be decent. In 1954, you couldn't have that confidence um, in America. <laughs> you know, a lot of restaurants were really crap, um, and you had to watch your step. Uh, and I felt that uh, this is a different culture, um, and there were that's just one example. But there were so many other aspects of that was a, a hugely important experience for me in um, in becoming sensitized to cultural difference. There was nothing in my life prior to that um, that uh, that reached that level of importance. Uh, for me, um, but then then I built on that. I think that you know going into something like Chinese history was clearly related uh, to my openness to um, to delving into another cultural experience, one that was different from my own. Uh, um, so, <laughs> I'm not sure I made my I'm, point I'm still not, clear, but yeah. maybe we should continue it another time. We'll take. Um, I think. One last question. Two, oh, so two questions from from uh, Jin first, and then Jules. Um, my name is Jin. I met Paul because I sent him a paper on Fairbank, on John Fairbank, which I was surprised. I sent I sent you a paper that I wrote a couple of years ago on my own reading of Fairbank, and I was surprised at how quickly you replied, and I was surprised at your detailed response feedback. Um, so that's why I, I, I have a lot of respect. Um, I, I was struck by your, uh, your, your, your talking about the difference between experienced history and constructed history. Um, I, my background is journalism, and there's this well-known cl cliche that never let facts get into a good story. And I get, get, in, uh, get, get in the way of a good story. Um, and never let facts get in the way of a good story. Yeah. Okay. And um, I, I. And you think that historians do that too? Um, I, I, 
I think there's advantage. There's advantage of doing that because because um, there is a trade-off between simplicity and effectiveness. Um, and when when Mark asked the question, how to 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 make Washington understand a more nuanced, comp complicate, complex uh, picture of China, I, I thought of. Um, um, Trump's language when he speaks an eighth grader English, and, and that's how he can uh, speak to the mass. I also thought of the effectiveness of Chairman Mao. Why is Chairman Mao so so was so effective? Because he his language, his concept, well, were were so easy, were so accessible mm. to an, to the average people. Mm. So so I think in a in a way. Um, um, for historians to be effective, they have to deal with the, the trade-off between simplicity and effectiveness. Mm -hmm. and, and then um, I have another um, oh another. But you point. don't think that historians can deal with complexity and still they, have they, and they still have appreciative with, readers? Uh, uh, they can deal with complexity in their complicated way, in their com complicated language. Right. Um, but but they. But the, the cost of that is the effectiveness, uh, such as to people in Washington. Yeah. Or, mm -hmm. There's a cost to it. Um, so when you try to grasp, uh, when you try to understand history in a complicated way, in a com complex way, then you, you accept the cost as well at the same time. Um, and then I have another um, point, which is the... Uh, uh, to have a constructed history. The di another difference between constructed history and experienced history is you put logic and uh, you put logic to explain how so and why so, why things happened in the way it, it did. And in doing that, you have a thesis. Um, if you try to uh, present history in its own complexity, uh, then um, it would not be as coherent as... Uh, it's difficult to have a thesis when you cite the example that this woman's this this young woman who talked about Chinese responses to Western impact. Um, I think the only the only uh, possible coherence in her in her paper that you read is that he anchor she anchored her paper against Fairbanks. Um, impact and response model, which gave her an anchor in writing her paper. <clears throat> something to, some to, ar to argue against, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, right, something to, to argue against. That yeah. gives her coherence. Yeah. When, when you try to capture what is the zeitgeist of the time, you have to capture the main point, the, the main thrust of the time. And um, if you try to talk about Chinese responses of the time, then what is the main thrust of the of, of the of, of the story, of the history. What is the thesis? And the only possible thesis that I can think of for that, for her paper, is Fairbanks' anchor, par, parama, uh, par, paradigm, simple paradigm, that gave her an anchor, that gave her coherence to her story. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, there's a question there. Do you want to riff on that a little bit? Two points. Two points. <laughs> Uh, well, it's it, um, coherent story, coherent constructed history. Uh, I, I think that 
you, you've got a point. The, the, um, and I think that I would say that uh, in responding, as I did, um, as strongly uh, against uh, uh, the China's response to the West, to that, uh, that I uh, uh, undoubtedly uh, oversimplified the target um, in order to make my response more more impressive. Um, uh, I, I, uh, I, in fairness to myself, um, I also have a chapter uh, in my memoir um, on uh, important aspects of China's history. <clears throat> in recent centuries um, which do not work, for which the China-centered approach does not really work. Um, migration history, the history of uh, uh, non-Chinese ethnic groups, um, it's, it's really, uh, it, it, it's, it's too complicated to be um, simplified uh, under the uh, China-centered uh, approach. So I think it's, it's a, you know, I mean, I think it's 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 always important to realize what you're doing. Um, if you're going to be using a target uh, in a <coughs> in a in an oversimplified uh, way in order to strengthen your position, um, okay. But at least understand what you've done and and how you've been able to construct your response. And I think very often that isn't the case. And I would include my, myself initially, uh, although eventually I think I did come to a recognition that um, just as I came to a recognition that uh, uh, outsideness was not necessarily a disadvantage, that it could also be an advantage in certain circumstances. Um, and I think a China-centered approach is, um, is a good approach, um, but it's not necessarily the approach that you want to apply in all, in all situations. It's, um, we are a little over time, and I'm very glad um, that to give the last question to, I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, one of the youngest people in the room, uh, who is, a, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a, a senior at the college. Mark, second row here. Um, uh, so uh, 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 we have the, we've had comments from a historian at the peak of his career. We'll have the last question from someone just starting her career. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jules, and I'm a senior at the college. I'm a student of history and math, and um, I just finished my thesis on um, the Opium War. So it was really a pleasure to hear the talk. Could and you I try speaking a little bit louder? I first learned about Professor Cohen in my history tutorial as a sophomore when we were asked to choose a particular field of our own choice um, to write a historiography paper. And um, Discovering History was the um, book that I wrote about. And my question was, you talked a little bit about your personal relationship with Chinese history and especially the, um, the past half a century of writing and learning about Chinese history. And I'm wondering what is your sort of personal experience or um, feelings towards the changes and transformations of China in the past half a century, not necessarily as a historian, but also as an American citizen, as, for example, a parent or a consumer going into, you know, when your iPhone doesn't work as well as it should, and when you're picking out your next phone. Thank you. I didn't didn't hear enough of it. Oh, great! Can, can, can you can you just wrap the question up quickly? Louder, yeah. 
Um, I was just wondering your personal feelings towards the changes and transformations in China in the past half a century, not necessarily as a historian, but also as an American citizen or a parent or a private consumer. Did you get it? Uh, not really. But so so they, 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 your, your, your thoughts on summing up the transformation in China uh, yeah. in, the, in the course of your career. So not history, but how China has right, changed. Right, right, right. Um, is that right? China is... is uh, yeah. uh, I, when I was in graduate school in the late 1950s, um, if you had told me that uh, China um, 50 or 60 years later uh, was no longer going to be a country where 20% of the population in the, lived in the cities and 80% lived in the countryside and where 20% um, were well-to-do and 80% were impoverished um, and, uh, and, and presented me with the China that we have today um, where 350,000 uh, students from China annually uh, study in institutions of higher education in the United States. Um, uh, and many of these are students are not poor Chinese. They're, they come from middle-class Chinese families. I have a daughter who was teaching uh, uh, for some years at, uh, in Rhode Island that uh, English is a second, as a second language. And she would often have a class that was, you know, 25 people in the class, 24 of whom would be Chinese. Um, and they... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, which was not ideal because they there were enough of them so that they would speak Chinese with each other too often instead of practicing their English, but it it, it, it was a uh, it, it was a clear instance of something of a phenomenon that was inconceivable uh, if you go back to the 1950s when I was in graduate school inconceivable that China could send that many people uh, to the United States to study at their own cost um, not with not with a huge scholarship because a lot of the American universities were um, were taking in and and this is true today international students in order to help them deal with their financial um, uh, situations. They don't do that by giving large fat fellowships to, uh, to foreigners. Uh, so it's, a, it's a, 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 if you want to, uh, do I have a sense of change that has taken place in China during the course of my career? Uh, uh, the answer is uh, huge. Of course, there have been more than one change. I mean, um, in the 1950s, um, the Great Leap Forward hadn't yet taken uh, taken place till the end of that uh, the end of that period, um, and then you had the Deng Xiaoping uh, era, which was reversed a lot of the things that uh, that were commonplace during the Mao uh, the Mao, Mao years, and then after uh, Deng Xiaoping for a few, uh, Deng Xiaoping was able to sort of. Uh, the way in which the succession operated um, at that point in time was that Deng Xiaoping could, in effect, appoint um, the 
his successors, and and uh, and he he did. Um, and then when uh, Xi, Jin, Xi Jinping became uh, the uh, the chief honcho, uh, um, it, it uh, he got it he got the rules changed so that he could appoint himself in effect um, indefinitely um, as uh, as the top top dog in China. So these are important changes that have taken place politically changes and also economic changes um, in China, not to mention the uh, degree to which um, the degree that the, the level of education in China today of, of the average citizen is uh, it's incredible. I mean, it's a very highly educated uh, society. Uh, <clears throat> which was not the case when I began to study uh, uh, China. Um, so they're just, they're, they're, and, and, and the internet, of course, which is a big item uh, in, in, in the furniture of Chinese life uh, today, didn't exist in the 1950s or the 60s or the 70s for them, for that matter. And it's, a, um, it's another window on what's going on in the world, uh, which the Chinese are very, very, uh, uh, they're very, very sensitive to. They they know. Um, so it's it's there. I mean, I could go on and on and talk talking about the in in the changes in China that have taken place during the course of my what 60, 65 year period as a student of uh, of Chinese Chinese history. What? It would be hard to make the argument that it's the most significant change, but one extraordinary change is, I think, in the 1950s when you came to Harvard, it would be hard to imagine the work of a scholar named, I'm assuming Cohen is your Chinese name. Cohen. Cohen, is that your Chinese name? Yeah. It would be hard to imagine the work of a scholar called Cohen being a bestseller uh, in China. Um, uh, but you've had several bestsellers in China. I think the Chinese version of this will be a bestseller. Um, it's been such a, a great treat to work with you over the years, but also especially to uh, work with you on this project and to have you here today. Thank you so much, and thank you all.